This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and I'm joined here by one of my colleagues, an emeritus professor from the Department of Learning, Teaching, and Curriculum here at the University of Missouri. It's Bob Rees. Bob, thanks so much for sitting down with me. My pleasure. Bob is actually a curator's professor from the University of Missouri uh, and the first curator's professor in the College of Education, which is a great honor. Um, that's a kind of our highest level, highest uh, title that we can have for our faculty members here. So I'm really uh, happy to sit down here and talk about your career in math education. I want to start back at the beginning. So what was it that helped you decide to go into higher education to actually pursue like doctoral level study in math ed? When I finished my bachelor's degree, I, I enjoyed uh, the work I was doing there, and I was offered a teaching assistantship. And uh, I went ahead at now the University of Central Missouri and got my master's in mathematics. And I enjoyed that. As I was coming to the end of that assistantship, I uh, talked with the math chair at the University of Missouri. Mm -hmm. He said if I was interested in, in coming here that uh, they would have uh, support uh, for a doctoral program. And, mm -hmm. Since I enjoyed what I was doing, I said, uh, I'd like to continue. And, hmm. and so I came to the University of Missouri and uh, began to pursue a PhD in mathematics. Okay. And uh, then as I got more into teaching, I, I realized that I wasn't going to continue research in mathematics, but I would like to continue uh, doing uh, teaching mm -hmm. and research. Mm -hmm. And so uh, then I went ahead and, and uh, moved into a PhD program in mathematics education. What era was this, and kind of how did PhDs in math ed work at that time? Because there probably weren't there weren't as many you know doctoral granting institutions as we have now in specifically math ed. That's for sure. During that time, uh, the programs were very small. In fact, our program here at the University of Missouri was basically one or two professors, usually uh, graduating one person maybe every year or every other year, more mm -hmm. like every other year, mm -hmm. and almost everybody who was going out was uh, prepared to go into a math department rather than uh, a college of education because okay. they had a very strong math background. Okay. So it was kind of one of those things where it's really the dissertation and the PhD is math ed, but it's built on top of a foundation of pure mathematics. That's right. And so yeah. uh, the majority of people were going into collegiate level teaching of mathematics. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. So who did you work with at that time, and then what was the focus of your dissertation? Yeah, my, my advisor was Floyd Dillon. He was uh, uh, the math ed person, although Lois Knowles was also here at oh, that time, and, okay. and she was uh, the elementary math ed person, and, and both of them were very influential in terms of my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually my dissertation uh, was in uh, focusing on preparation of uh, elementary school teachers. Okay. At that time, there was no requirement in the state with regard to uh, a math content course for elementary teachers. Oh, wow. So you really had a hodgepodge, uh, very... Uh, wide range of uh, foundational mathematics among the elementary uh, teachers. Wow. And one of the things that uh, I guess I remember from that era was uh, the uh, Mathematical Association of America mm -hmm. formed a group called the Committee on Undergraduate Programs in Mathematics, and they came out with a series of recommendations with regard to the math content mm -hmm. for uh, preparing not only elementary, but middle and secondary teachers during the uh, mid-60s. 
that recommendations uh, really had a major uh, impact on our program here at the University of Missouri. Hmm. So once you finished, uh, what was kind of the, the early phases of your faculty career and how did you get connected into the field that was still kind of a young field in, in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, when I, when I came through the program, I, I hardly knew uh, people in mathematics education at the national level. Mm-hmm. I would go to a meeting and, and maybe I'd see people whose papers I had read, but wow. I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to do then was to establish some connections, some networking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I wrote a number of papers, and uh, and that was helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. It not only got me uh, some recognition, I guess, but it also uh, made some contacts with people around the country. Okay. And then the th- third year I was in uh, the uh, as a faculty member here, the provost had a program, uh, a development program for new faculty. Hmm and allowed you to go anywhere you wanted to for the summer, they would pay your summer salary. Hmm. And so I chose to go to the University of Minnesota mm-hmm. uh, because at that time it was one of the, uh, the largest uh, doctoral programs in, in uh, the country in mathematics education. Right. Uh, Donovan Johnson was there. Mm-hmm. He was the president of NCTM at that time. Uh, David Johnson was there. He was the first editor of JRME. Hmm. Tom Post and, and several other people uh, who, who went on to make uh, their names in math education were there as well. Mm-hmm. So it gave me a chance to meet and work with these people and get more ideas about how we could strengthen our own program here at, at Mizzou. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's nice of Mizzou at that time to have supported that financially. That's a really kind of great initiative. They also have a sabbatical program, and I know you took advantage of the sabbatical program as well to kind of continue making your network of contacts. Exactly. Actually, three years later, I had met Jim Wilson, uh, who was finishing up his doctorate at Stanford University, uh, and he was involved in uh, several research studies there with regard to uh, uh, some of the things going on in modern mathematics, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And Jim had just taken a position at the University of Georgia, and he and I talked, and he said, uh, if you'd like to spend your sabbatical here, mm-hmm. we'd love to have you. Oh, yeah. So I went there for uh, the 1973-74, mm-hmm. and during that time, he and I, uh, he actually wrote the proposal mm-hmm. to uh, NSF to look at the uh, data that were being collected from the first national assessment of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And part so of the NAEP. Uh, part of the NAEP, uh, okay. actually their first assessment. Oh, wow, okay. And so we worked on that for two years uh, with a team, including Tom Carpenter, you know, developed a series of publications uh, related to that. uh, What's one of the main things that still sticks out in your memory from when you were looking at that first NAEP data? uh, I guess one of the things was that they were so uh, protective of the data Hmm. that they wouldn't allow us to have it at the University of Georgia. Oh. We actually had to physically go to Denver, which is where the headquarters was. And so we spent uh, like uh, four weeks there the first uh-huh. summer, and then we went back uh, during the year to uh-huh. look at data because they wouldn't allow us to mm-hmm. uh, take it uh, from their headquarters. Wow. So they were very protective. Yeah. What were some of the things that you were able to kind of notice? Any patterns or you know some things that stuck out to you from when you did get into that locked room and see what it looked like? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that was unique with the first assessment was that they had a young adult data, which they no longer have. They only did that on the first assessment, okay. which means that they actually sampled people from, I think it was like uh, 
26 to 35 or something like oh. that for young adults. Oh, in the population. In the Just, population oh, to wow. look at uh, how they would perform on some of these items. Oh, wow. It was so very fascinating. Compare high school performance, for example, to like 28-year-old from the public. Yes, yes. <laughs> wow. And, and so that, that was a dimension that I, I thought was really interesting, mm -hmm. but kind of fell by the wayside because it was so expensive to collect those Yeah, data. yeah, I would imagine, yeah. That is fascinating to think about, though. And then that got you some involvement in the next NAEP study, though, right? Because That's right, because yeah. as we finished the first assessment, then they they'd already were underway on the second assessment, and one of the things we were able to do was to make a contribution on some items mm. from the first assessment building into the second. And one of the areas that we thought was not tapped in the first assessment was the importance of estimation. And so we actually wrote some items uh, on estimation that were included in the second assessment. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, what it revealed was that uh, children uh, that were being assessed were not very good at estimating and, mm -hmm. in fact, did not really understand what estimating was. Mm -hmm. So you became more interested in that then, right? So mm -hmm. this triggered uh, yeah. a self-interest in terms yeah. of doing some more personal uh, research with regard to estimation. That's right. So mm -hmm. we, we actually... Uh, submitted a proposal to the U.S. Office of Education mm -hmm. to uh, conduct a, uh, a study of uh, kids. Actually, it was uh, what we tried to do was to focus on really good estimators mm -hmm. to find out what kinds of uh, thinking went into be, being a good estimator. Mm -hmm. So we sampled uh, uh, several hundred students in seventh and eighth grade and then in high school. In high school, we always went to the accelerated classes. In seventh and eighth grade, we went to accelerated classes because we thought that those students would be more likely to be good estimators. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we found was that even with those very uh, good students, there was quite a range hmm. of their uh, ability to estimate. Hmm. Uh, some students were good at estimation, at least on this test, because they were good at mental computation. Uh. So they would do exact computation oh, and then round and, it off. And round it off. <laughs> it's a and that, that was what they thought uh, estimation was. Hmm. I have the precision, but I'm just going to remove the precision. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it was fascinating because uh, they, they thought that's what estimation was. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the things they had been taught in school reinforced that. You actually can, if you're given two numbers to add, and, and the idea on estimation is to take a complex problem and make it simpler mm -hmm. so you can get an answer that's in the ballpark. Right. For many kids, they would get an exact answer and round it and feel like they were doing what the teacher wanted them right. to do. That's that's actually a more complex process because you've done all the complexity of the computation and then added another step. That's right, a sacrifice <laughs> that exact value for yeah, the yeah. estimate. And is uh, just for a little context, is the estimation largely numerical estimation, or did you also look at kind of spatial estimation? Like how how long do you how tall do you think that door is, or you know that kind of stuff yeah. too? We focused on uh, computational estimation. Okay, yeah. Uh, but but you're absolutely right that those are those are surprisingly different kinds of skills. We yeah. did look some at spatial, uh, but they uh, they aren't necessarily uh, uh, yeah, yeah. the same. Yeah. So think, thinking back to that era when you were focusing on the estimation stuff, what's something that you saw made an impact on the field, even maybe practitioners and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, one of the things that that led to, we did the research and then we submitted a proposal with Paul Trafton. Uh, Paul Trafton is really a great person, uh, a very 
creative in terms of curriculum development. Hmm. And Paul and Aunt Judy Zavaleski worked together with Barbara on um, some materials hmm. for grades six, seven, and eight mm-hmm. that would, uh, in a structured way, develop uh, what we thought would be some estimation uh, skills. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we felt was that some of the things that were being taught in school were counterproductive with regard to estimation. For example, instead of rounding numbers to uh, the nearest 10, sometimes uh, you want to round to other numbers because they, they're compatible, they work. Yeah, strategic and, rounding kind of. Right, yeah. and, and when you work with fractions, for example, uh, you think about rounding maybe to the nearest fraction. You know, if it's nine-tenths, think of that as a whole number uh, of one and then a little bit less if you're multiplying uh, something or Mm -hmm. or adding something. Mm -hmm. And so we we tried to look at benchmarks with Mm -hmm. regard to Mm -hmm. fractions and decimals and the importance of using those benchmarks when you do computation. Yeah, and I even think like you were saying to not only have the estimate but then also know which side your estimate is on. Like if you say, I'm I'm working with nine-tenths, I'm going to use one but when I'm done, I'm actually going to know that it's actually, my estimate is a little bit high and it's actually going to be a little bit less than that, for example. Like to me, that shows even more sophistication of you can, you can be strategic and come up with the estimate and then you can say an additional piece of information, which is, and by the way, that's a lower estimate, you know, or that's a high estimate. That's even, that's even nicer, right? They can put that onto it. That's, that's a great uh, point. And that's what we found with the good estimators, that they, they, were, they were comfortable in making that kind of adjustment. So it wasn't a matter of coming up with a particular estimate, but they would round it down or adjust it down or up depending on the values mm-hmm. that were worked with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a related point to that. As we were, well, we worked on these materials. Then Barbara and I actually went to Japan hmm. for a year with okay. another NSF uh, project. Mm-hmm. And basically that project was focused on uh, estimation and mental computation in Japan. Mm-hmm because we knew from research that had been reported that Japanese students were typically very good at exact computation. What we found was that they really struggled with estimation hmm. because they were comfortable and they were good with exact computation and so there wasn't hmm. uh, a, a reward for estimating. Hmm. That turned out to be a very, uh, a very interesting year mm-hmm. in working with uh, students there as well as faculty. Hmm. I'm definitely noticing a theme of travel and collaborating with other people spurring things along. It seems like that's important to kind of get outside the box and go other places and see other people. Oh, yeah, and it was a, it was a great year. It truly was. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm speaking with Bob Rees uh, here from the University of Missouri about his career in mathematics education. And um, Bob, one of the NCTM Lifetime Achievement Award winners, so um, very well deserved there. Part of your work is in this next phase that we're going to talk about here, which are a few related projects. There's the Show Me Project, and then eventually what people might know is the Center for the Study of Mathematics Curriculum, CSMC, which Barbara was also centrally involved in here. Um, We should say Bob and Barbara Rees, not just a coincidence, they are (laughs) a married couple in math education. But talk to us about how, what was it that led up to the Show Me Project, and then how did that kind of go forward? That was interesting because this was the mid-90s, and NSF had funded, uh, we're beginning to fund some curriculum projects. And one of the things that uh, Barbara picked up on, she is, a, she is one of the rare people who has public school teaching experience K 
through 12. Wow. She taught high school. She taught <laughs> middle school. She taught elementary school. Wow. And so she was very uh, impressed with these materials. And, and, and we talked about uh, the value of helping more teachers become familiar with them. So she wrote a project. I was co-PI, but she initiated uh, to uh, bring in uh, some people who were involved in these curriculum projects to highlight them, demonstrate them with some of our local teachers. Hmm. And this happened uh, about 1995. Coincidentally, 1995, we actually ha both got a Fulbright to go to uh, Sweden. Mm -hmm. So we were in Sweden when she learned that the project had been funded. <laughs> so she came back and worked some things out and, and got the project started while I stayed, in, uh, I stayed there. And then we came back and during the summer, held one of, uh, I think we had, for three summers, we we did workshops mm -hmm. focusing on these materials. Yeah, and that's with Glenda. And we brought in uh, some of the authors yeah. from uh, these uh, materials, uh, like Glenda Lappin and Betty Phillips from Michigan State, from University of Montana, Rick Bilstein. Rick was uh, one of the senior authors of, of another middle school project, and mm -hmm. uh, he came in, and we brought in uh, uh, some people from California who were involved in uh, a project there. And so we were learning about these projects, mm -hmm. but we were also uh, making some contacts with people who uh, who were on the front e front edge in terms of uh, uh, writing these materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the teachers who might be using them. Right, and actually then part of this project was to follow up those classroom teachers okay. to see how they were, where they were in terms of implementing. They had a choice mm -hmm. of choosing any one of uh, the units. They weren't make, expected to make a full commitment to a curriculum, but we did ask them during that year to choose a unit and mm -hmm. try that unit out. And, of course, in most cases, that was a selling point as far as the curriculum materials were concerned because they would use that unit and they really had a positive uh, yeah. effect on them and their children. Uh -huh. And then they want to use the f subsequent units. That's right. <laughs> yeah, now they're hooked. Exactly. Yeah. And so that project uh, lasts about three years. And then the National Science Foundation felt that they, they wanted to uh, disseminate these materials on a broader scale. Mm -hmm. And so they ended up funding three different national centers one for secondary, uh, one for middle school, one for elementary, that would be charged with the task of uh, doing this not just statewide, which is what we had been doing, mm -hmm. but on a national basis. Okay. And so Barbara then became the project director for the uh, the Show Me project, which focused on uh, the middle school project. Okay. And now, yeah, expanding out beyond. So you have a Missouri name, Show Me, because it is based in Missouri, but it actually now is reaching outside of the state. Even. That's right. Yeah. And so... Uh, during the course of those years, uh, we would do workshops and, and have hundreds of people uh, mm -hmm. attend them. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it was a great uh, way to get these materials uh, known around the country. Yeah. And then eventually the Center for the Study of Mathematics Curriculum, which I had the pleasure of interviewing Barbara about. There's a past episode I can put a link in if listeners are interested, where Barbara talks about kind of her role in the history of the CSMC. I just want to ask you here quickly, like, what, what was your role in CSMC and what did you see as your kind of major contribution? Yeah, I basically did what Barbara told me to do. <laughs> Good answer. 
<laughs> I want to I want to focus on something that you have been very involved in, one of the leaders in, and that is looking closely at doctoral programs in mathematics education. Like, how are we as a field preparing the next generation of faculty members, researchers, scholars, teacher educators? You know, at the doctoral level. So, how did you first get involved in that as an area of inquiry, where you actually started systematically kind of looking at doctoral preparation in math education? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it kind of evolves as your career evolves. You talk with other faculty members, uh, you visit these campuses, you find out uh, what they're doing in their doctoral program, and you say, wait a minute, why didn't I think of doing that? Uh, that sounds like a great thing we should be doing. Mm -hmm. And then you find out uh, uh, some people, aren't, uh, the programs differ very much in terms of mm -hmm. course offerings, in terms of structure, in terms of number of faculty. And so Jeremy Kilpatrick at the University of Georgia, Jeremy and I uh, talked about this and I, I said I, I'd like to uh, submit a proposal uh, uh, just to bring some people together to talk about doctoral preparation. Mm -hmm. And Jeremy, uh, he, he, he said that's a great idea, let's do it. Mm -hmm. So we submitted a proposal to uh, National Science Foundation to have a conference where we brought in I think uh, probably 100 people from uh, maybe 50 different uh, institutions that we knew had uh, a record of producing uh, doctoral students in math education. And that was a, a fantastic meeting in terms of, of people uh, sharing what, what, what had been going on, uh, how their, what they did in their program, and, and we, had, we had some subgroups, we had some uh, plenary speakers like uh, Jim Fay. Jim gave a great address on, uh, on just looking at mathematics education, doctoral preparation. And then we had a, a look at the history of mathematics education mm. in terms of doctoral programs and mm -hmm. I found uh, to some people's surprise uh, that the first program uh, was at the University, uh, Columbia University Teachers College mm -hmm. and graduated people starting about in the early 1900s. Wow. Basically, the interesting thing about their program was that uh, they were basic people who took a PhD in mathematics and then did their research in education. Mm -hmm. That was the only difference between a PhD in mathematics yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and their program. Hmm. And so I think that kind of uh, influenced a, a lot of other doctoral programs so that you want to have a strong math component hmm. and then do education on the side. Mm -hmm. I think what we've witnessed over the years is that there's been uh, quite a range of interpretations of that. And what we found out in this first conference was that some programs uh, didn't require any mathematics uh, mm -hmm. to be a, uh, in their math ed program. And I think that was a shocker for all of us, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you've got to have a mathematical foundation of some sort to be a math educator. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, it was a very eye-opening uh, experience. and. Actually, I think that was one of the things that led to uh, a task force that put together a document on the principles to guide mm -hmm. the preparation of uh, doctoral students that the, uh, the ended up being published by the uh, AMTE, and it, it still exists on their website. Mm -hmm. uh, and it basically was an effort to say what we need to do is to make sure that in preparing doctoral students there ought to be some core knowledge to cut across all programs. And I think we that's a goal that we still need to strive for because it, it hasn't been reached. Continuing on this, uh, th this is something I, I tried to mo 
follow up on the first conference, one of the things that became clear was a shortage of doctorates in math education. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we, we've done the subsequent studies on that, and I think particularly during uh, the, uh, from 2000 to 2010, uh, there continued to be an acute shortage. Right. Um, I think that has been addressed to some extent mm-hmm. because of the increase in the number of uh, doctoral students in math education, which is really great. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, partly due, I think, to uh, some of the uh, problems that institutions of higher education have had in terms of uh, budgets, too, that uh, oh, you've yeah. got two things operating here. Right. Just faculty numbers are kind of down because of college funding situations. And then the supply of method PhDs has increased a bit, so that now is at a more of a balance where, yeah, in the 2000s and when I was entering the job market around 2012, mm-hmm. it was still a very good job market for people that had a PhD. There was a lot of options in mm-hmm. front. And, um, but, yeah, it seems like it has definitely equalized out supply and demand a little bit by, I think that's, by 2018. That's true. That's probably uh, good for, uh, for the profession. Mm-hmm. And, of course, picking up... Uh, after the first conference, then uh, there was this focus uh, with regard to NSF funding a series of uh, centers that uh, focused on learning and teaching of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And that was directed to some extent to uh, help resolve the shortage of oh, doctorates yeah. in math education. Mm-hmm. And so this was happening, I think, partly as a result of that first conference, because we revealed that shortage, the need for it, mm-hmm. and then within two years, these centers started to surface. Yeah, and NSF was providing funding to the centers, and a lot of that funding actually went to fellowships and assistantships for doc students to that, recruit doc students in. That's right. Were you a part of... Uh, uh, I was adjacent. I was center adjacent. I was not actually like one of the fellows okay. of it, but my you know peers were, and because they got that money, I was able to get some of the other money. So it all kind of... It benefits everybody to have you know the investment in those centers. That's right. Yeah. And so it really resulted in a, uh, a bump in terms of the number of... Uh, doctoral students from very good programs who were mm-hmm. graduating and it gave those programs a chance I think to uh, to strengthen mm-hmm. uh, at each of the institutions that participated. There were 23 different institutions uh, that were involved in these as far as mathematics education was concerned. Mm-hmm. And as this began to evolve, uh, submitted another proposal to NSF to fund a second conference okay. that was funded uh, and the conference was held uh, toward the end of these centers because we thought that that would be a good time to bring people in to see how the center, these institutions profited and grown as a result of this funding from NSF and how has it impacted your doctoral program. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of the discussion at the uh, of the second conference. Yeah, and then you also had a grant Actually, when you were officially retired, you still actually were getting a grant <laughs> to uh, keep working on that. And that was also to follow up on the impact of the centers, right? To kind of check what was the payoff of that big investment in doctoral education. That's that's right. And, and we're, we're still uh, cranking out uh, some papers on that. So Yeah. What's one of the, uh, maybe just share one of the little nuggets that has come out from that most recent study? Well, I, I think uh, one of the things that uh, we're, it's going to come out in the January issue of uh, the notices. Uh, okay. Is just looking at the uh, the change in terms of, uh, of doctoral programs and uh, how these programs have uh, are perceived by their colleagues uh-huh. around the country. I think it'd be very interesting uh, results. People want to take a look at. Yeah, great. We'll look forward to that. Another th- 
thing I want to mention is that as a result of, of the centers, one of the things the centers allowed us to do was, you know, in, in our, our center here, it was Michigan State, University of Missouri, University of Chicago, and Western Michigan University. And each of them had doctoral students that uh, were just uh, really an integral part of all of us learning. We, we got together on a regular basis with their doctoral students. And we saw the, the power of the interaction among the doctoral students. Mm-hmm. And so we got to talking about, boy, if, is there a way to uh, allow this to continue? And so we submitted another proposal to NSF uh, that resulted in uh, the, the STAR program, mm-hmm. which I think uh, career-wise, I think was one of the, the best decisions we've ever made because it it really does provide opportunity for uh, uh, emerging faculty members from a wide range of institutions to uh, to come together for uh, a few weeks and interact, well, a bit of time at least, mm-hmm. to interact and, and to network mm-hmm. and to engage in some discussions that that uh, I think will enrich their careers. Yeah, and get some advice from senior faculty members. Yeah, I was a STAR fellow. Uh, it really helps a lot in my early career. You know, I did it between my first year and my second year of being a faculty member. And it really helps to meet other people who are at a similar place in their career, support each other, also get some advice from senior people, um, stay connected. Also, a lot of collaborations come out of STAR. I've written some things with STAR friends, and I know others um, from my cohort wrote things with each other that the kernel of the idea kind of came while they were just, you know, talking or interacting at STAR. STAR is currently run by the Association of Math Teacher Educators, so if people are interested, you can go through AMTE and still find the the current version of STAR going on. But yeah, it's this fellowship program for early career faculty members in math ed. It's really a great legacy. Yeah, we feel it is, and I'm just very proud of uh, having been a part of that. And I, I think the fact that it was funded for three years by NSF and now I think it's in its eighth or seventh or eighth year. Wow. I mean, I think it's a recognition by the math ed community that this is this is really a worthwhile endeavor, and it exists simply because of donations by people who want to see it continue. Mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed talking back over your career. You have such a long perspective, you know, having seen the math ed field grow and develop and looking at different programs in math ed. You've been involved, you know, in a lot of different projects and different avenues. So I want to tap into your perspective a little bit and just ask you, if you look at the field overall right now, what do you see as a pressing issue, something that the field really needs to focus on, understand better, or work to solve? Yeah, I, I guess because of my more recent work with doctoral uh, preparation, I, I would really like to uh, to see a better alignment of doctoral programs with uh, with a core of knowledge. Okay. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying every program ought to be alike, mm-hmm. but it does seem to me that when you go out with a doctoral program uh, in mathematics education, that there ought to be some things that everybody uh, has a handle on. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will make that happen, mm. but one of the things I'd like to see would be some effort to, uh, as I said, align with, with the, uh, the principles that preferably actually updating those principles. They really need to be updated because they're now 15 years old. Mm-hmm. It, it may it may be accreditation. Hmm. Maybe that's the, of doctoral the tool programs. of doctoral programs in math and education. And I know some people uh, have said, well, 
there are all kinds of problems associated with that. And I, there are problems. It would have to be uh, uh, set up and set up in a thoughtful manner. But I, I know it exists in music education. Hmm. They have an accreditation for doctoral programs in music education. And I've talked with uh, people in music education, and, and they've said this has really helped us strengthen our program because we have teams come in and review our program, and the feedback we get from them allows hmm. us, gives us leverage with our administration to say we need to do these kinds of things to maintain our accreditation. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that's something that uh, begins to get on the radar screen for a yeah, number yeah. of people. I see. So in, in one sense, you're kind of saying there's value in a core you know, a core that we can see across programs, but you're also saying it could be strategic for our field to use as a lever to just have continual improvement and exactly. to convince people that have the purse strings or people that are in administrative positions, hey, we, we have this lever now of we want to we be accredited, we want to stay accredited, that might help us negotiate for or get what we need to support our program or grow our program. That's right. Actually, along that line, probably the last five years, I've, I've gone to um, maybe six different institutions to review their doctoral program. Okay. And every case, uh, we've pointed, you know, you point out things that could be improved and strengthened, that sort of thing. And you come back and you, you wonder if you've been too hard on the program in terms of mm-hmm. uh, critiquing it because there are a lot of good things that you, you embellish as well. But in every case, I think we've gotten feedback uh, from those reviews that they were really helpful in mm. terms of bringing about some change that the faculty there wanted to bring about, but this uh, review uh, facilitated uh, those changes. Right. My guest is Bob Rees, uh, here from the University of Missouri, or maybe Missouri. We can, we can talk <laughs> about that later. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you one more question, and this is now to think back over your life and imagine that you were not in mathematics education. You did not do this research, all these projects, this, these endeavors. What could you imagine uh, doing instead? Well, to be honest, when I started college, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I liked sports. Hmm. And I, I really uh, thought about being a PE major, mm-hmm. but very early on, I realized that PE majors didn't have, there weren't any job opportunities in PE, but there were a lot of job opportunities in mathematics. Right. And so I said, so I So you were keen math. on job markets even back <laughs> when you were very young. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I, I would have, I would been very happy to go on a career as a math teacher and uh, do some coaching on the side. Mm-hmm. I, I love uh, kids. I like mathematics. I enjoy being in a school environment, mm-hmm. and uh, I just think it's a great career. Yeah, and you have stayed involved in sports in various ways. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, well, uh, for at least 10 years here in Columbia, I, I volunteered as an assistant coach for uh, one of the high schools here and really enjoyed it. That meant uh, teaching classes in the morning and then mm-hmm. uh, getting release time in the afternoon to, yeah. uh, to go and help uh, the, the kids. Yeah, and you do uh, some tennis officiating, is that, do I have I that do. right too? Yeah, in fact, next spring I'll be working almost every weekend, uh, working Big Ten matches or SEC or uh, Big 12. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, great. Really enjoy it. Yeah, well, Bob, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, my pleasure.
Thanks for listening to the Math Ed Podcast. If you are interested in becoming a mathematics education researcher or a teacher educator, then I invite you to consider our PhD program here at the University of Missouri. We have a strong community of faculty members and graduate students, and several active research projects that you could get involved with. Our focus is on K-12 mathematics education, and our unifying goal is to empower teachers and learners in schools. A real hallmark of our research is that we all go out regularly into schools and work authentically with teachers, some of us at the elementary level and some in middle schools and high schools, and some with district leaders. So although our PhD program is a full-time residential program here at the university, you can rest assured that you will have close and meaningful contacts with teachers and students in schools. Our PhD program is designed to take four years, and we offer monthly stipends plus free tuition to our doctoral students, so we'll pay you to get the degree. If you're interested in more information, we'd love to hear from you. My email address is ottensa at missouri.edu, and you can also go to mizoumathed.org. That's M-I-Z-Z-O-U mathed.org.